The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. And it was supplying uh, as much as 35% of electricity to Ukraine before the war. So that is now shut off. Other plants are destroyed or getting continuously hit by Russian missiles. And you're going into winter. And at the same time, Ukraine is still buying gas, Russian gas, but it's not buying directly from Russia anymore. It's actually buying it on the European markets. And we know what's happening with that gas is Russia's cutting off supplies and the prices of gas are going through the roof. So you have enormous catastrophe looming here, economic catastrophe for Ukraine. Um, They're getting some foreign aid, but nowhere near enough to sustain their budgets. Their foreign reserves are dwindling. Uh, So it's not a pretty picture. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 15th, 2022. Dmitry Alperovich is the founder of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington. He is also the empresario of the Geopolitics Decanted podcast, which you should all listen to if you are interested in the Ukraine-Russia war. He joined me in the virtual jungle studio to discuss the Ukrainian offensive in Kharkiv Oblast last week. How big a deal is the Ukrainian retaking of large swaths of territory? What's going to come next? Is this a prelude to a larger rout of Russian forces or to a negotiated settlement? Or is something else going to happen? We talked about it all. Are the Russians running out of ammunition? Are they running out of people? Or will the Ukrainian economy collapse before victory? It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 15th, Dmitry Alperovich on the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So I want to start by figuring out if people are getting a little bit too excited about the Kharkiv area offensive. Obviously, it took place very fast. It involved the recapture of a lot of territory and the a rather flamboyant collapse of uh, Russian forces. On the other hand, there are still a lot of square miles of of territory that are under Russian occupation in Ukraine. And it's not entirely clear to me that this presages a larger routing of Russian forces. So I want to ask you to start how big a deal is what happened over the weekend in Kharkiv Oblast? 
I think it is a very big deal, but uh, you're also right that it does not necessarily mean that the Russian forces in Ukraine are about to collapse. It's a big deal for a few reasons. One, obviously, it is a recapture of significant and quite strategic territory in in the north um, that the Russians have held in some cases since the the early days of the war. Um, Some of the towns that they've uh, just recaptured, the Ukrainians have just recaptured, were literally captured by Russia on February 24th. So from that perspective, it's significant. It is also significant that the Ukrainians were able to execute fairly sophisticated offensive operations for the first time in this war. There was always a question of, can Ukraine sustain uh, these sorts of operations? Um, Can they execute them effectively? They've done a remarkable job, of course, the last seven months conducting defensive operations, but offense is quite a bit more complicated. And uh, as I've talked to on my own podcast, Geopolitics Decanted, with um, Reserve Colonel in the Ukrainian forces, Sergei Grabsky, He told me that in his career in the Ukraine forces, the last time that he and his friends have practiced offensive operations was 1992, 30 years ago. So um, the fact that the Ukrainians were able to execute this, I think, is really important. However, you're also right that this is not necessarily an indication of overall weakness of Russian forces. And that's for several reasons. One, uh, a big part of the reason why the Ukrainians were this successful and were able to do it so quickly is because the Russians pulled most of their forces that were in the north and even some in the Donbass down to the southern front the Kherson offen- uh, per- to prepare themselves for the Kherson offensive. And as a result, uh, there was a very small force left in the north that the Ukrainians were able to easily overrun. And that force itself mostly did not have many Russian regulars. It was consisting heavily of LNR, these um, uh, Luhansk uh, National Republic statelets that Russia created, back in 2014, conscripts, so people that have been uh, forced into the service, not necessarily well-trained personnel, and and uh, morale there is quite low. They've been doing much of the fighting over the last uh, three or four months here without rotation, so um, they're exhausted, and, and many don't really want to be there. And then the second part of the the, the force that, that, that represent a huge component of the leftover forces is Rosguardia. Rosguardia is, um, it translates into National Guard, but it's really not a, a guard in the, in the same sense that we think of National Guard here in the United States. It's really more of an interior forces capability that is effectively, I describe it as cops with tanks. Um, so they're well-armed, but they don't necessarily have the training to conduct either offensive or defensive operations, and they're used mostly for control of the population, not necessarily to engage with you know, significant uh, battalions that the Ukrainians were able to throw at them. So as a result, both of these um, forces crumbled very quickly. Some, some even ran the minute they saw the Ukrainians coming without even engaging, and uh, it was a very rapid route, but it does not necessarily mean that the regular Russian forces would fall this quickly uh, or even would um, fall at all uh, when confronted with Ukraine force. And in fact, we're seeing that in the Kherson offensive, which is a real offensive. In fact, the majority of the Ukrainian forces were fighting in the south in Kherson, not in the north around Kharkiv. There appears to have been only about four battalions or so, four to five battalions that the Ukrainians used in Kharkiv. Um, The force down south is much larger and they have not made much progress. They've been fighting there for three plus weeks now, uh, taking significant casualties. The Russians are not running. They're fighting back, even though the Russians there are actually in quite precarious position. We can talk more about that. But um, 
I think it's an indication that uh, this success in Kharkiv is not necessarily an indication that you're going to see total collapse of Russia elsewhere. Yeah. So in your conversation that you referred to on your podcast, and for those of you who are interested in the uh, subject of the, the conduct of the war, there is nothing quite like Dimitri's podcast, Geopolitics uh, Decanted, and I can't recommend it highly enough. In your conversation with Reserve Colonel uh, Sergei Grabsky, you actually pushed him on the question of whether the uh, Kherson offensive was a feint or whether it was a real offensive. And of course, it would have been cool for him to say, oh, yeah, it was a feint. Uh, We were just trying to draw forces south so that we could advance in, in the Kharkiv region. But he didn't say that. He said it's a real offensive, you know, which is sounds less cool from, from a tactics point of view, because of course uh, it's going pretty slowly. And we all thought a few weeks ago that the, you know, liberation of Kharkiv city was coming. Uh, and so I do think when you look at it, you see like two offensive happened. One of them is highly successful, lightning fast and takes a lot of territory. And the other one's kind of grinding along. So how do you understand what is going on in Kherson Oblast and and why that force is, uh, despite the strikes in Crimea, despite the, you know, every night HIMARS attacks on weapons depots and stuff, uh, the Russian army seems to be holding up pretty well there. So they are holding well, but again, these things take time, and we should not expect uh, you know victory in two days uh, for for either side. Um, particularly when you have a significant mass of forces backed by artillery, as we're seeing uh, on both sides in her song. And I, I still believe that the the Ukrainians are going to recapture her son city in the coming months, simply because the Russian position on that west bank of the river is not sustainable. The Ukrainians have done a terrific job targeting the bridge infrastructure across the river. There are about three or four bridges that they've destroyed, uh, more or less, as a result of the HIMARS strikes, these uh, precision long-range artillery strikes that were provided, the weapons were provided by the United States. And uh, the Russians are now relying on ferries and some pontoon bridges to carry over supplies from the eastern bank to the western bank of the river. And those are under fire control of the Ukrainians and are getting regularly hit. So it's just not a sustainable situation for them to have all of those forces that they've flown, including from the north, into that western bank. And I think they're going to have to do withdrawal at some point. It may not happen next day or next week. Uh, but over time, they're going to exhaust their supplies, including their artillery supplies, and their position is going to get um, unsustainable there. Similar to the, what happened on Snake Island, which, you, as you may recall, the Russians were holding for a number of months uh, initially in the war. And then ultimately, the Ukrainians started hitting their supply lines, destroying boats that were resupplying the island with TB2 drones. And uh, the, the Russians voluntarily relinquished the island in a so-called goodwill gesture uh, that they've executed on a number of, of occasions now, as they called it, uh, when they pulled back from Kiev and, and Snake Island as well. So I do think we're, we're going to see another so-called goodwill gesture in the coming months. It just may not happen quickly. But, um, you know, as, as I said, these are good troops that they have down there. They're battle-hardened. These are not 
LNR conscripts. These are not uh, Rus Guardia troops. Um, they're real regulars of the Russian military. They have quite a bit of armor and artillery, and uh, they're holding ground, and um, they're inflicting a lot of casualties on the Ukrainians. But it is a real offensive, um, and uh, we now have another confirmation of this, of course, with the New York Times story that came out this week, talking about how the U.S. was actually deeply involved in the planning for both of these offensives and actually counseled Zelensky against this uh, very risky idea that he was initially pursuing to go all the way to Mariupol and cut the Russian forces in half. The U.S. and, frankly, some in the Ukrainian military judged that to be incredibly risky and, and, and likely to fail dramatically. And they scaled that back to, to have these two offensive in Kherson and, and the north. And, of course, the Russians helped them considerably by moving the forces down south to reinforce the Kherson offensive. So you mentioned the high Ukrainian casualties. Uh, the Ukrainians issue uh, casualty reports about the Russian side daily, and they're really dramatic. I mean, just the, the numbers that they are reporting of Russians killed um, is now over 50,000. And I'm, uh, I'm interested in your assessment of how seriously to take those numbers Clearly, they've lost a lot of people and a lot of supply, uh, a lot of munitions, a lot of armor. But could those numbers be accurate? I, I mean, they're they're awfully detailed, and they're but you know they're getting up in ranges that are actually hard for me to imagine are real. Yeah, so th- there's obviously an information war going on, and both sides are using propaganda to maximum advantage. And um, I'll tell you this, no one knows what the true numbers are, including most likely the Russians, because, you know, on many occasions, they're just leaving the dead in in the war zone and uh, are refusing even attempts with the Ukrainians to exchange them. Um, So they don't seem to be doing a good job of tracking their own casualties uh, in the Russian military. But everyone I've talked to in U.S. government and across the experts community think that the real numbers are probably half of that. So a few weeks ago, the estimates I was hearing before this major offensive began, um, that the Russian casualties were probably around 20,000. They could have probably creeped up since then, maybe 25 or so. Uh, But no one serious that I've talked to thinks it's it's as high as 50,000. And those are, I should mention, those are KIA. Obviously, there's most likely three times that number that are wounded. Um, not all of them are so seriously wounded that they're out of service. Some may have gone to hospitals and then returned to the front, but that's usually the ratio, three to one. What about captured? I mean, there was a lot of reporting about the possibility that a very large force of Russian forces were soon to be surrounded or were effectively surrounded and that they would eventually have to surrender. There have been various reports of of large-scale surrender talks, but I don't have a good sense of how many Russians uh, the Ukrainians at this point are holding. So it looks like the bulk of the forces in the North were able to escape. They left most of their equipment, but um, they they got into cars and, and drove away. And the Ukrainians got some people, but it's probably numbered in the hundreds, not thousands, as, as some initially thought. So let's zoom out for a minute. And so if you, if you imagine a map in which the sort of Russian-occupied region north of Crimea 
extends in this sort of L-like along the Black Sea coast and then up along the border with Russia, you have the Ukrainians have now lopped off the northern piece of this. They're fighting in the Kherson region. What's the next step from the Ukrainians' point of view? Is it to try to cut through down to the Black Sea coast and, and... or is it to push down into Crimea? What's or or to focus on Kherson? What's the what do you imagine the next step in their in their campaign looks like? It's a good question. You know, obviously, I'm not privy to their war plans, and hopefully, uh, no one else that's talking publicly is as well. Right, but you see, that's why we ask you because that's if right. we ask somebody who could talk about it, we wouldn't want them to answer. Exactly. You can speculate. I can speculate. So, well, one thing, and I don't think this is you know speculation really, but is has been confirmed by many people is that Kherson continues to be a key front here, and the, the Ukrainians are going to continue to focus on destroying Russian supplies in that region, continue their counteroffensive. And, and try to throw them out from the western bank of the river. That is a very strategic area. Taking back Kherson uh, opens up navigation on the Dnipro River, uh, which is really important for economic purposes to try to revive the Ukrainian economy. So I think that will remain the focus um, in the near term. Um, and I think they'll be successful there ultimately, but it may t- take time. Then um, I think they're going to look opportunistically to see where Russia is weakest. The major problem that the Russians have had really since day one of this invasion, but um, certainly since they pulled back from Kiev, is that they just don't have enough forces to keep this massive area of territory that they've grabbed. And again, this is something that I've talked to Grabsky about on several occasions. Uh, If you look at each battalion tactical group, and Russia has about 20 to 30 of them in the south, each one has a responsibility, according to their doctrine, to defend about two to three kilometers of territory. Well, that area is thousands of kilometers. So do the math. They just don't have the force to to keep it all. Yeah, Ukraine is big. Ukraine is huge. It's the second largest country in Europe um, after Russia. And the Ukrainians, I think, are going to opportunistically look at where can they execute another Kharkiv type of offensive because the Russian forces are too weak. They are either in total numbers or because of the type of uh, forces that they're actually facing in that particular region. Most likely, I think it's going to be to try to do something in Luhansk Oblast, where, uh, again, a lot of the forces have been pulled down south and they can be quite weak there. These are the forces that have just fled from Kharkiv region into Luhansk. um, So they know that they don't have the stamina to stay and fight. For those who don't have a visual map a, a mental map of this area. Luhansk is the region just south of the Kharkiv area that these uh, that this offensive was executed in. So imagine, uh, as Dimitri's talking, a whole lot of these uh, weak forces having gone south into the into Luhansk, which is sort of the northern part of the Donbas region. That's right. Uh, it won't be easy. And, you know, one of the big problems that they're going to face there is that they're going to have to do a river crossing, the Oskol River. Um, and that's not going to be easy, particularly if the Russians are going to keep the fire trained on, on those crossings. Uh, but again, depending on the capabilities that the Russians have in that particular region, the Ukrainians may find some weak spots that they can use to to get into Luhansk. And um, 
you know, that's going to be very significant because they're going to be able to cut off Russian ground lines of communication uh, to much of their force in the Donbass. Um, taking Izum was very strategic because it was a key command center and supply uh, hub for Russian forces and their reinforcements uh, to the Donbass. Taking more of Luhansk Oblast would only improve uh, the Ukrainian strategic position uh, and weaken Russian positions. So I think I think it's going to be opportunistic, and it's hard to know because we don't have, of course, the detailed intelligence on what the Russians are currently doing since the loss of Kharkiv, whether they're repositioning some of those southern forces back up to the north or not. We'll probably figure that out in the, in the coming days. But the Ukrainians, no doubt, armed by the best of U.S. intelligence, have a much better picture on that. I'll tell you one more thing, Ben, that I'm watching very carefully and and I think could be one of the most important piece of news that we've heard about this war since it began. And that was the story that came out in New York Times, uh, leaked by senior administration officials here in the United States, about the fact that Russia is buying artillery shells and rockets from North Korea. Uh, When I first saw that, I immediately set up and, and, and thought to myself that this could be a game changer. And here's why. The Russian military is completely dependent on artillery. In fact, this whole war on both sides has been, despite all the focus on sexy stuff like drones and cyber, has been a war of artillery. Uh, Both sides have inflicted most of the damage to each other with their artillery systems. And coming into this war, everyone, including people in the U.S. government, thought that Russia had years worth of artillery supplies to conduct, you know, incredibly heavy artillery operations, and that there were no danger of running out. That started to change this summer when we started getting reports that um, the Russian forces were raiding the Belarus ammo depots and taking artillery from there. And I was, I remember I was sort of getting this um, feeling of like, why, why are they doing this if they have years worth of artillery? But, you know, most people kind of dismiss this, including myself, because maybe it was just an opportunistic thing. They were there and they just decided to grab it. Uh, maybe it was, you know, easier to transfer it into the fight into Ukraine uh, from Belarus than uh, from Siberia or far eastern Russia, where they would um, ordinarily get the, the ammo from. But now they're buying it. But now they're going to North Korea and begging them to get to get the ammo. And there are two two important things here. One the North Koreans are unlikely to give them massive stocks of ammo because guess what? The North Koreans are also heavily dependent on artillery for their own war plans. Uh, so in any type of confrontation with U.S. forces on the DMZ or the, the Koreans, uh, their plans is to demolish Seoul with uh, artillery fire. And they need millions of shells to, to execute that operation. So they're going to be watching their stocks very carefully. They'll give Russia some, but they're not going to empty out their reserves uh, just to help out Russia. And two, what this likely means is that the Russians may have a lot of shells, but the usability of those shells is highly questionable. And we know now, uh, seeing uh, their use of artillery in Ukraine for the last six months, that up to 40% of their shells don't actually explode. So there is significant problems either with the storage and maintenance of those shells or defects in manufacturing or all of the above. And guess what? North Korean shells are unlikely to be significantly better. So what all this means very likely, and you know this is speculative, so we don't know for sure, but if Russia is starting to run low on their supplies of shells, if they're not going to be able to match and not, not just match, but actually exceed 
Ukrainian artillery fire by as much as six to one as we've seen up till now, they're going to be in really bad position because they already are low on manpower. The Ukrainians have a significant advantage there. They're running low on infantry fighting vehicles, uh, which is going to impede their ability to execute offensive operations. If they run out of artillery, they don't have much left to rely on uh, to keep up this fight, even defensively. And that could be an absolute game changer for how this conflict unfolds in the coming months. Now, I want to be, make it clear that this does not mean that Russia is going to run out of artillery ammo tomorrow or run out at all because obviously they're, they're ramping up their own production. But they're just not going to be able to keep up uh, with the rate of fire that they've been using until now. And this is going to limit the effectiveness of their forces quite significantly. Yeah. And even if you don't run out, if you increase the percentage of unexploding shells, you reduce your military effectiveness a great deal. Massively. And of course, the Ukrainians are contributing to that because they're hitting their ammo depots with HIMARS uh, and have destroyed quite a bit of it. They've also taken over supplies uh, during the Kharkiv offensive. So the Russians are losing artillery ammo uh, in rapid numbers here and have been since the introduction of HIMARS in, in June. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire 
and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code lawfare20. So I'm 
interested in your thoughts on the Russian side of this. There's been a lot of discussion on Twitter and elsewhere of the sudden recognition in uh, Russian media, uh, particularly Russian television, that the war isn't going well. The kind of split reaction among commentators, some of whom, you know, are doubling down on the idea that we need to fight a war of annihilation here, and some of whom are actually entertaining the idea that Putin may not have served Russia well here. How do you understand the current state of Russian thinking about the war? So I think it's really important to realize that whatever happens on Russian television has no bearing on what happens actually in the Kremlin and what Putin is thinking or going to do. So there's lots of people that are saying various things on Russian television, some because they believe it, some because they're trying to curry favor, um, some because they are naturally bombastic and trying to occupy that very far nationalist right um, on the Russian political scene, uh, which has existed throughout not just Putin's tenure, but really since uh, the emergence of modern Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. You may recall Vladimir Zhirinovsky, the most famous nationalist and 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 sort of bombastic clown, if you will, that has been on the Russian political scene since the, those early 90s, passed away this past spring. Um, a lot of those people are trying to sort of take his position in that sphere and, and um, say various outrageous things on Russian television. Putin allows this and, and I think actually enjoys it because it allows him to be presented as a more rational alternative that is not so insane as some of these commentators in television. And he is this you know, fatherly figure in Russia, sort of a new czar that uh, is going to figure out what, what's best without uh, engaging in, in these, uh, this crazy polemic. So what, what, what is Putin thinking right now? Well, I, I'm pretty convinced. Obviously, no one knows what's in his head, and he's not uh, prone to sharing that widely. But I, I'm fairly convinced that up until last week, he believed that Russia was ultimately winning Ukraine. Yeah, they ran into some issues. Yes, they couldn't take Kiev in this initial fight, but he thought he could grind down the Ukrainian forces. The Black Sea blockade, which is one of the most vital things uh, in this war that is rarely talked about, it is it's literally crippling the Ukrainian economy. Uh, obviously, the gas blackmail that he's engaging in to try to uh, impose significant pain on the Europeans. He thinks all of those things or he at least thought that all of those things would ultimately allow Russia to prevail in some form or fashion and, uh, and ultimately come out with a victory. He may be rethinking that. We, we don't know that, of course, um, but clearly he understands that, that Russians have suffered a significant defeat in the Kharkiv Oblast because of this offensive. And, you know, he may start to perhaps, you know, in his mind, start to think about how do we get out of this quagmire with his reputation and his power intact. And I think he still has a lot of options left on the table to do so, uh, primarily because of the nebulous way in which he defined the goals of this operation, right? If you recall, when he went in on February 24th, he said, the goal here is to denazify and demilitarize uh, Ukraine. Well, what does that actually mean? So I think at any point, given his full control on the information landscape in Russia, he can say, mission accomplished. I've demilitarized Ukraine by destroying much of it. Uh, you know, I've denazified it by killing a whole lot of Ukrainians, even though Zelensky is still there. And uh, it's time to end this. 
Do I think he's going to do this anytime soon? No. Uh, but I do think that at some point he's going to appreciate that this is turning the wrong way for Russia and that he's going to need to come to some sort of realization and accommodation with Zelensky. That probably will result in some uh, wins for Russia. You know, for example, Crimea, I think, is highly unlikely to go back to Ukraine. We'll see, of course, wars are highly contingent, but that's where I think you have a red line for, for Russia. And many Russians who, by the way, may be sort of lukewarmly supporting the war right now because they don't think of this war as existential for Russia because it's not. But, you know, if the Ukrainians start retaking Crimea, which most Russians across really the political spectrum do think that uh, is, is Russian territory, even though they captured it in a legal way in 2014, but historically has been part of Russia for centuries, you know, that that is where you have a variety of escalation scenarios, potentially even nuclear, although I, th- I still think it's highly unlikely, but um, the possibilities um, start rising dramatically when you start thinking about Crimea. So I, I do think that there is an option for him to to end this without losing power. So a lot of people that think that, you know, if he loses, that he's he's going to be incredibly weak. I, I don't think so. It, it depends on how it happens. So I, I want to return to the escalation scenario because one, one way you could respond to this is to escalate. And, you know, particularly if you are a hyper macho image conscious individual, which Putin is, the idea that you would fall back from capturing Kiev and decapitating the regime to securing Donbass is humiliating enough. The idea that you can't even accomplish that might be more than he can bear. And so I guess I'm interested for your your sense of what a highly petulant Putin's options are, you know, short of a you know, use of tactical nuclear weapons. But, you know, what if he simply does not accept that Russian forces are not going to prevail here? What are the steps available to him uh, other than nuclearizing the conflict? That's the thing. He really doesn't have many options left. His main problems today are lack of manpower, which is going to get worse and worse, not just because of casualties, but because Remember, this is a volunteer force that is fighting in Ukraine because by law, since this is not a war, conscripts are not allowed to fight. And many of the people that are fighting, they sign 12-month conscript paperwork contracts. Most of them signed it pre-war. So you have people that have signed up last fall, maybe early winter, that did not plan on fighting. And now, as their contracts are going to start running out, you know, probably many of those that have faced pretty hard fighting and have seen the disasters of this war uh, are not going to be in a hurry to re-sign up. So he's going to be losing a lot of people who decide not to re-sign up for the war once one more time. And um, his ability to pressure them to stay is going to be fairly limited, particularly as they rotate forces off the line and you're going to be back in Russia recuperating. You just walk off the base and you're done. A little bit harder to do that if you're on the front line. How do you hitch back a ride from Kherson back to Russia? But um, this is going to get progressively worse for him in terms of manpower. We've talked about the ammo potential ammo shortages and shortages really across a number of weapon systems. 
um, that the Russians are using in the conflict, those are not going to replenish themselves, particularly with the semiconductor export. Um, well, the export from the United States and other countries into Russia is creating significant shortages in terms of building precision-guided munitions and advanced uh, weapon systems that, that they're using in this conflict, like drones, for example, which is why they're purchasing them from Iran. But what are his options? Um, well, he could declare it at war, and uh, that would allow him to enact stop-loss policies where he could actually say, no, you cannot cancel your contract. You're you now conscripted, effectively, into the fight. Uh, he could send conscripts into the war, although most of these conscript, conscripts are not well-trained because they've reduced training and the conscription period for those forces. It's also going to be highly, highly unpopular and um, is, is going to enable him to compensate somewhat for, for the manpower shortage, but not significantly, uh, not in a way that's game-changing. He could declare mobilization, again, something that would be highly un politically unpopular in Russia, but it also won't solve the problem immediately because you still have a question of who's going to train those forces. A lot of trained personnel have been killed in this fight, and those that haven't been are fighting right now in Ukraine. So you don't have actually good trainers left that, that you could use to actually train these people up. Where are you going to get equipment for them? Where are you going to house them? Where are you going to get weapons for them? You could solve all those problems over time. You know, Ukrainians obviously have as they mobilized over a million people, but it's going to take months before that becomes effective. So even if you declared mobilization tomorrow, you know, it'll probably be spring before you can actually use uh, most of those forces in the fight. And clearly, he's not willing to take that political cost at the moment. Um, so in the short term, he's got very, very few options left. In, in the long term, you know, if he's thinking years down the road, yes, with a mobilization, with declaring a war and putting the economy on the war footing, which would be very politically precarious for him, uh, he could continue it for, for a while. But then he still has, you know, the ammo and the weaponry shortages that, as we said, North Korea is only going to sell so much. China is refusing to sell. It's not like Iran is a massive producer of weaponry that he can purchase either. So he he still has, you know, a, a significant problem on his hands in, in, in all aspects. And I just don't see how he can pull out, you know, a significant territory gain here, particularly if the Ukrainians are going to be willing to fight even through a cold winter where the Russians are targeting their electricity. And um, uh, I expect them to get even more brutal in terms of targeting their food supplies potentially and other things to make it really, really painful for the civilian population. But, you know, I believe the Ukrainians are all in on this and they're going to keep fighting no matter what. And um, Russia, I think, eventually is going to lose. It may take a long time, but um, I, I don't see how they can pull out a win here. So realistically, the escalation opportunities are kind of nuclear or nothing. Yeah, and even nuclear, I mean, unless you use strategic nuclear weapons, you know, tactical nuclear weapons are not going to, you know, significantly help you in this offensive. It is going to make you a pariah. Even the Chinese are going to have a far, hard time dealing with you after you use nuclear weapons. It's going to be even hard to explain that to Russians when you spent the last seven months telling them that Ukraine and Russia are one people and suddenly you're nuking them. I, I just don't think it's, it's a viable option at all. All right. So let's turn back to the Ukrainian side. If I am uh, Volodymyr Zelensky right now, 
And it has been reported that there have been various outreach for negotiations from the Russians. I don't know how seriously to take that, but it seems to me that at least until we know that the offensive is slowed or stalled, the Ukrainians have very little incentive to engage in a negotiation right now. Do you agree? I'm not sure I agree because there's a military dimension to this conflict that clearly the Ukrainians have done really well, but you know, continues to struggle and take significant casualties in the southern front, as we've discussed. But there's also an economic aspect that, that is getting very little attention. And the Ukrainian economy is literally collapsing. The GDP is shrinking by 45%. There's a lot of discussion in the media and among pundits about what is the true impact to the Russian economy, that it compressed by 5% or 10% or whatever. You, there's no question that the Ukrainian economy is so much worse than the Russian economy. Uh, you have uh, the blockade that is destroying virtually all of Ukrainian exports. There's some exports that are still going through rail into Poland, but the shipping is really uh, nothing. Nothing can replace that. Uh, the shipping capacity out of the uh, Black Sea ports like Odessa, Mariupol, uh, Kherson, and Mykolaiv. You have uh, obviously the destruction of Ukrainian factories and uh, other economic production activities. You have uh, 6 million people that have fled the country, you know, a country that was 40 million people before the start of the war, another 5 million displaced internally within the country. So you're talking about, you know, a quarter of the Ukrainian population that um, uh, is not producing economic value for the country. Um, in fact, the opposite in terms of the displaced people that you have to support through social services and the like. And now the, the Russians are amplifying their terror campaign uh, by going after the power stations. So since losing the Kharkiv region, they started targeting uh, power plants in uh, eastern Ukraine uh, around Kharkiv and uh, Dnipro and some other places. And they've shut down the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia that everyone's been talking about for the last couple of months where you've had shelling. Uh, around the plant, which is something you never want to see around nuclear power plant. And the reason that nuclear power plant is really important is because it is one of the largest in the world and it was supplying uh, as much as 35% of electricity to Ukraine before the war. So that is now shut off. Other plants are destroyed or getting continuously hit by Russian missiles and you're going into winter. And at the same time, Ukraine is still buying gas, Russian gas, but it's not buying directly from Russia anymore. It's actually buying it on the European markets. And we know what's happening with that gas is Russia is cutting off supplies and the prices of gas are going through the roof. So you have enormous catastrophe looming here, economic catastrophe for Ukraine. Um, they're getting some foreign aid, but nowhere near enough to sustain their budgets. Their foreign reserves are dwindling. Uh, so it's not a pretty picture, um, even though on the military side, things are starting to look up. So, you know, I, I do think that there is going to be an opportunity down the road, perhaps not today, but, uh, you know, I, th I think you want to see through the Kherson counteroffensive and hopefully see it, uh, see it being successful. But after that, kind of negotiate, you know, this war so that you can relieve the Black Sea pressure, because, you know, I don't see that blockade going away without a negotiation with Putin. Even if you retake all the territory, even if you manage to retake Crimea somehow, you still have Ukraine without a Navy and Russian Navy still 
having significant capabilities. They've actually moved it to the other side of the Black Sea, to the Russian territory there, uh, which is outside of the range of Ukrainian missiles. And they're going to be able to sink any cargo coming out of uh, Ukrainian ports uh, with their naval assets, uh, both surface and submarines, as well as uh, their naval aviation. So you're going to have to come to some sort of agreement with Putin to actually lift that so that Ukraine can resume its economic uh, activity. And guess what? He's not going to do it cheaply. Uh, He's going to want some price for it. And um, it remains to be seen what price Ukraine is going to be willing to pay for it. But um, I don't see a way out of this without some sort of negotiation. Interesting, because I I look at it and I say the time for that negotiation is at the point at which neither party perceives an opportunity to advance. I just I think you're accurately stating the stakes for the Ukrainian economy, which seem quite dire, and their their current accounts uh, deficit is in. It's like five billion dollars a month or something, yes. and and they they they're they're in really really dire shape. And yet, uh, when was the last time an army called off a successful rapid advance for economic reasons because of uh, of fiscal problems domestically? And I I just find it very hard to believe that Ukrainian politics would tolerate that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, but it all depends on what you're going to get from Putin. So I don't think Ukraine is going to accept anything short of February 23 lines. we return to those lines. Uh, but you could potentially get that from Putin in the course of negotiations. There's been reporting, um, including from Fiona Hill and others, that Uh, Back in April, the Russians actually offered that to Ukraine, and uh, it was ultimately rejected by by Zelensky. You could potentially get even more if they were willing to offer it back then. Potentially, you could get um, something more in exchange for for a ceasefire. One thing I think the Ukrainians have to get, and the more I talk to Ukrainians, the the more I think this is, without this, there is no capacity for a deal, which is the return of the very large number of people who seem to have been deported into Russia from uh, the area around Mariupol. And I am interested for your thoughts on, I, I can't remember the last time two states had a negotiation over the return of what are essentially hundreds of thousands of civilian hostages. It has a a weird World War II vibe to it. What does that negotiation look like? I I don't think it's going to be a hard one. I I don't think Putin cares at all about those people. I think they're a pawn for him um, to use to increase leverage on Ukraine. Uh, But, you know, I I don't think it's going to be hard to get those people back because guess what? He doesn't want to feed and clothe and... um, give them shelter either, given the state of the Russian economy. So I think he'll be happy to to send them back if he can get, you know, something consequential for it in, in the overall deal. And what do you think he's looking for? Is he looking for legitimation of the uh, Crimea annexation? Is he looking for significant uh, territory in Luhansk and Donetsk? What, what would be a leave aside what domestic Ukrainian politics would tolerate, what do you think is a 
political settlement that Putin accepts. You know, I actually think that he's going to be very flexible and it's going to be contingent on the circumstances. Obviously, you know, his initial plan was to to take over Ukraine, to change its government, to make it a more pro-Russian government. He's failed in that. You know, after that, he's shifted towards, well, let's try to take Donbass. He's failed in that largely as well. And I, I think he, again, he, because the, the goals of the operation were so nebulously defined, he can define success nebulously as well and say, mission accomplished, we've done what we needed to do. In, in some ways, not unlike what we just did in Afghanistan after 20 years, right? Saying mission accomplished and then Taliban takes over. Um, so great powers tend to do those sorts of things. Would he like recognition or national recognition, certainly Ukraine recognition of Crimea? Of course he would. Can he get it? I seriously doubt it. Um, I don't see the Zelensky government or any other Ukrainian government actually signing on the bottom, uh, you know, the bottom line of, um, you know, relinquishing all rights to Crimea. There could be some sort of deal where, you know, the can get, gets kicked down the road and it's a long term lease for a number of decades that the Russians have over Crimea or something like that. But I don't think that Ukrainians will give up um, that region uh, voluntarily. But Putin's willingness to accept certain parameters of a deal are going to be highly dependent on what is the state of the fight? You know, can he actually sustain it? Or is he going to start believing that Russian forces in different parts of Ukraine are actually going to crumble and it's going to create even more problems for him domestically and, it's, and internationally, frankly, as Russia looks weaker and weaker? What is the state of the Russian economy? Uh, what is he thinking is getting accomplished with the pressure he's putting on the Europeans and the Ukrainians economically? Uh, so it's going to be highly, highly contingent, but he's always been flexible. And I think he can, you know, portray a loss as a win easily to his population because of his control of the media. We are going to leave it there. Dmitry Alperovich, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the incomparable Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, I, you know, every now and then I have to remind you that you should do your part to support the Lawfare Podcast, to uh, share it on all the socials. I still have never seen anyone make a TikTok video about the Lawfare Podcast you can be the first. Our Patreon is available at patreon.com slash lawfare, and it is there that you can and will become a material supporter of Lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell. Our music is performed by the quarantined Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. 